Good morning. Good morning. Do take a seat. Do um, continue those conversations at the end. Um, lovely to see you all here. If this is your first time, my name is Michael. Uh, I'm one of the clergy here at HTC. Um, so just a little bit of background about what we've been doing these past few weeks. We've been laying these big foundations about the gospel. What is the good news of Jesus Christ? And we've been looking at what it means to be saved by the gospel, what it means to be liberated by the gospel. And so that's all well and good. And for some people, you're still on that journey of like, you know, what does it all mean? Do I really believe it? And I'm so pleased that you're here. And if you would like help in that journey, then please do come and speak to myself or Jago or Jamie, any of us. We'd love to talk to you. But for many of us, we're like, right, we're signed up to all that. What does this good news, what does this gospel mean when it comes to how I live my life or how I engage with others? What does it, what does it mean? What does it literally do? Because that's what we want to kind of grapple with today. Now, I'm going to tell you where I'm landing so that if you're tired, you can catch 20 minutes of sleep, but at the end, you'll still be able to give me a nice word of encouragement. Thank you so much. That was great. Okay, so what we're doing is we're landing on being inspired by the gospel, inspired by the gospel. And it seems obvious, but actually in practice, it's a lot more difficult, especially being a Christian here in South London. So can I invite you to grab a Bible at the end of the pews? We are going to look at a passage from 1 Corinthians, and it's a great place to start. You can find it on page 1144, 1144. Paul's writing about this city called Corinth, and Corinth is a lot like London, flourishing, multicultural, there's lots going on there. And so he's kind of going like, what is it that I said? What is the message? What is the crux of Christianity that I came and I preached? So we're going to read a couple of verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. You can find it on page 1144. Here we go. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand the signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jew and Greek, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So the heart of what this is all about is Paul is reminding them what he preached when he first arrived, the center point of the faith. And there's a big problem here for Christians. There is a massive dichotomy. Have a look with me at verse 20. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosophy of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And Paul is saying there is a tender moment There is a moment where the message of Christianity comes into conflict with the law and the philosophy and the wisdom of the age. 
And that is a dichotomy that has faced Christianity all the way through. If there isn't a moment of tension, then you're probably not preaching it right. Because there needs to be that in order to either reject it or accept it. That makes sense. So there's that tension point that he's found here. And that's the big issue. The cross, the message of Christianity will always, literally always, be foolishness to the culture around us. So what I want us to do is I want to look at these two cultures, Jews and the Greeks and the Gentiles, and then we're going to look at our culture today. Where is the tension? So let's have a look at the Jews. Have a look with me at verse 22. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But in response, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews. Right? So Jews demand a sign. They hear the message, and it's a stumbling block. Why is that? Well, the Jews have been waiting patiently for a Messiah. And the Messiah is going to come and he is going to overthrow not just the Romans, but all oppression of God's people. This son of man, this Messiah is going to come in power and he's going to come in glory. All the way through the Old Testament, right, you see God's people come in signs and wonders. Think of Moses and the parting of the Red Sea. Think of Elijah with the file and the prophets of Baal. So they are like, we're waiting for this guy and it's going to be massive. Paul then comes along and says, actually, it's a guy on a cross. There's a really interesting theologian called Justin Martyr. He was a theologian and, and he kind of journaled this dialogue he had with a rabbi and he called it Dialogue with Typhoid, which is a rabbi. And in it, you see how he's trying to go into the Old Testament. He's trying to be like, look at what it says in the Old Testament. This is why we think it's Jesus. This is why, you know, this is who we think he is. And this is the rabbi's response. Sir, these and such like passages of Scripture compel us to wait for one who is great and glorious and takes the everlasting kingdom from the ancient of days as son of man. But this so-called Christ is without honor and glory so that he has even fallen into the uttermost curse that is the law of God for he was crucified. Now he's referencing here Deuteronomy 21:23. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So what he's saying here is the lowest reference point for a Jew is someone who's crucified. And now you're saying this is the one you've been waiting for. No, 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 no. He's not the Lord, he's not Christ, he's not the Messiah. Now, let's have a look at the Greeks. The Greeks argument Verse 22, Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, and foolishness to the Gentiles. Right? So he's using Greek and Gentile interchangeably. So what does this word wisdom mean? We need to understand what that word means. It's Sophia, which is the kind of, it isn't referring to general wisdom and logic. You know, if you touch the oven, you'll know it's hot, you'll burn yourself, right? That's just general logic. Aristotle made the distinction between the two wisdoms, right? You had Sophia wisdom, which is who you are as a being, and then you had the epistemy or the epistemological wisdom, which is just logic, tried and tested. He's referring here to Sophia, who you are. So what did that mean? What did he think it meant to be wise? Well, first of all, you had to be male. You had to be male and you had to have power. You had to have social status. 
And the more people you had under, under you, the more wise you were. And this was seen most clearly in the gods. The gods were what? Powerful and had status. That's what it meant to be wise, Sophia. Paul comes along and he says, Savior of the world is a crucified Christ. It's always hard to kind of mock songs we've just sung. But... <laughs> It's funny, isn't it? Because we're in the West, aren't we? And it's like you get the guitar out. Oh, that rugged cross. Oh, so sweet, isn't it? It's like, oh, it just warms my heart. It was a horror. This is what Cicero said, right? This is what Cicero, who regardless of, he didn't believe in Christianity at all. He was just a politician, right? This is what he said about the cross. The very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. There is nothing, absolutely nothing of goodness that can come from the horror of death on the cross. Right? It is the lowest of the low. This is for the criminal and the deviant peasant. It was an insult to describe someone who had been through the cross as human. And now, Christians are saying, all glory and all power and God incarnate reveals himself on the cross. That is utter ludicrous. It's foolishness. Now, some of us, we might have one or two friends that are waiting for the Messiah. I doubt many of us have got friends that are rejecting the Christian faith because they believe wisdom is power. So why is it that people think the cross is foolishness. Now, this isn't everyone. This is just, there are lots of reasons why people reject it. What I want to do is kind of broadly kind of look at why some people reject the cross and boil it down. And this isn't to give a robust answer. This is just to get us all kind of thinking what it means. Because at the heart of all this, Paul doesn't give a kind of robust answer to these two. What does he say? We preach Christ crucified. That's the response. So what is the response that we need to have a look at? Now, one of the things that kind of some people think is that that what has happened is absolute truth has gone. And if Paul was writing today, he might say it's foolishness to be a South Londoner and to have any reason for Christ crucified because there is no absolute truth. You'll hear people kind of talking about there's a bigger picture. I see all the religions and I see the bigger picture. There is no absolute truth. There's no absolute certainty. There's no evidence. There's nothing to preclude that there is a right way. The only absolute is the absolute truth that there is absolutely no truth, which is an absolute statement in itself. But how do we get? How do we get to this point? We're going to do a really quick little summary. Okay? We're not going to drill down into everything. Let's just begin to kind of think through these things because what we need to be is gracious and loving and kind in our response. So what are we responding to? Immanuel Kant, he comes along, the Enlightenment comes along, and they say what we need to do is we need to have critical theory. We need to think through everything, and we would all agree with that. If, we, if we're critical about everything, we're on board. And he says this, dare to know, have the courage to use your own intelligence is the motto of enlightenment. Question. Question it. Don't just accept it. Question it. 
Nietzsche comes along, right? And everything's been pulled apart, and so he feels he is able to declare, God is dead. There he is. Great mustache. God is dead. And what happens with that statement is everything gets brought into play. How can you have a Christian kingdom, which is a Christian morality, a Christian ethic, without a Christian king? How can you do it? Is it possible? That's the question now that people are trying to answer. For many years, people have been discussing, no, 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 no. Stephen Pinker, most recently in his most recent book, Enlightenment Now, he argued that not only can we survive without God, but we can flourish. We are great. Modern day, moral progress. And he looks at a whole different groups of of objective. He calls this objective standards. Now notice the word, objective standards. Not subjective, objective. And he looks at the equality between races and sexes, the freedom of speech, the outlaw of slavery, child safety. These have all increased since the death of religion. But he says that these things are objective. Let me give you an example. You see a naked child in your neighborhood. Is it objective that you help them? Yes. We all agree. We all agree with Stephen Pinker. Yes. We should do something. The inequality of wealth, the inequality between the sexes. Do we? Should we? Yes. These are objective truths. We see the same naked child, and I say, oh, just leave it. Is that right or wrong? It's wrong, right? We don't, we're, not, we're not discussing whether it's up, you know, it's not like coffee, is it? Black or white. It's subjective, isn't it? It's a, it is objective. So the question then is, right, if we agree with Pinker that these are absolutes, and there's lots of things we can discuss about where he lands, but if we agree that these are objective, why then do people say there's no absolute truth? Why is it that we can say the naked child, that's objective, but Christ crucified is subjective? Who makes the decision about what is objective and what is subjective? And I want to propose that it is the idolization of self. It boils down to the substantial fact that most people today believe you and I can make our own truth. You want to, if, you want, if I'm allowed to believe in Jesus, great. You want to believe in Buddha? Great. If you want to believe that all religions are stupid? Great. If you want to believe that all religions are helpful and they're saying the same thing? Great. But whatever you say, don't say I'm wrong. We're allowed to say the child naked on the street? That's wrong. That is objective. But everything else is subjective. Who decides? Here's a picture of Karl Marx. He's got a great beard, if you can see it. Now, I found a website that puts um, motivational pictures behind his quotes. I was like, this is brilliant. Now, this isn't, I'm not saying we're all linked to this, but I'm just saying this is a helpful way to think through it. What did he say? My object in life is to dethrone God and destroy capitalism. Now, the second one we can debate. But the first is an interesting way of phrasing things, isn't it? The self, me and my view, we are truth. Not God, 
not revelation, not Christ, nothing but myself. We dethrone God in order to enthrone ourselves as God. We are the deity. We decide what's right and wrong. We are the deity that defines truth. We are the deity that defines laws and punishments. We are God. And what do we say when people think they're God? We preach Christ crucified. This is not about having some kind of tangible answer. Yes, we can talk about these things, and yes, we can debate, but the message is we preach Christ crucified. This is not about man becoming God. This is about God becoming man. We don't need a condensed answer. This is not about just trying to get people to believe. This is about one message and one message alone, Christ crucified. And that message inspires us to live it out in our lives. This message inspires us for social transformation. That's what we should all be thinking. Every time we enter this church, think of the history of this church. Right here was the Clapham sect and William Wilberforce. And at the very heart of their belief was Christ crucified. And what did that change for them, the way they viewed the world? This is what he said. God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners, that everything in society can change because of the truth of Christ crucified. It is the cross of Christ which inspires conversation, inspires apologetics. It inspires our mission and evangelism. It inspires us to pray for our family and friends who see it as foolishness. You know, that's what you're going to get here at HDC. We want everyone to be able to free to explore and to test and to question. We want that, but the message you'll always hear is Christ crucified. Many of us, many, many of you are asking about this church plant, you know, the church plant that we've been talking about for so long. Jago and I are asking ourselves, are they trying to change the message for us? Because if they're trying to change the message, we're not going to go. Because you'll hear it. You'll hear even the churches changing the message. They're playing God. God is the love you have between each other. God is the pluralistic nature of a cosmopolitan city. The church is just playing God rather than pointing people to God. And so what I want to do is I want to end on a couple of reasons why I think... I'm going to invite the band up um, because I know what you're thinking. Flip, is he ever going to end? Right? I'm going to invite the band up because then you know, oh, he is finally coming into land. What I want, what I want, what I want to, what I want to offer is, is, is reasons, reasons why a crucified Christ is non-negotiable. Is at the very heart of what Christianity believes. And I hope that if you're not, if you're not there, if you're still searching, if you're trying to figure these things out, you'll hear these truths and you'll go, yeah. I mean, that's something to think about, isn't it? I would definitely wouldn't believe. You know, he waves his hands a lot. That's sweet. But, you know, I've got a lot of questions. I've got loads of questions. Wonderful. This is, the, this is the place we want you. But for many of us, we're like, we've just, we've lost sight of the cross of Christ. We just think it's, oh, the rugged cross. Do you know what I mean? And you're like, flip. You know, this is, this is big. So I'm going to give some reasons why I think it's important. I'm going to invite the band to start playing. So you really do know I am ending. Um, and after I've done this, what I'm going to do, we'll, we'll sing, and then we'll take communion as a reminder of, of what, what it is that God has done. So can I invite you to stand?
We're going to go straight into a song. Right, so we believe, we believe, we believe. If you want to close your eyes, you can close your eyes. But we believe in Christ crucified because it reveals to us the true riches of God's love. It shows the depth of Christ's love for us. We believe in a crucified Christ because it takes away the wrath of God. It is the sacrifice on our behalf. It pays the legal payment from the law and it became a ransom for many. We believe in a crucified Christ because it is the supreme example of self-sacrifice. It reveals that he is the great shepherd. He did it to please the Father and it brings us to God. We believe in a crucified Christ because it adopts us into the family of God. It breaks the power of death. It gives us justification. We become righteous and it secures for us the resurrection after death. It takes away all condemnation. It gives us righteousness. It makes us holy and blames us and it heals us and it gives us eternal life. We believe in the crucified Christ because it delivers us from the present evil. It reconciles all nations into one family. It allows us access to God. It shows that we belong to Christ and it rescues us from the final judgment and so that we can meet God anywhere at any time. It shows that we are a priesthood of all believers. We are free from slavery and sin. We are dead to sin. We are cleansed from sin. It shows that he will live in us. It shows the forgiveness of sins. And finally, we believe in a crucified Christ because it shows that the worst evil can be used for good. Should we sing?